From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Monica McWilliams. Some said you'll have blood on your hands if you go for election. That's not what women are known for. The opposite voices in the room said, it's time to wave goodbye to dinosaurs. Let's do it. Monica McWilliams fought for a seat at the peace table that negotiated the end to conflict in Northern Ireland in the late 1990s. As one of only two women in the room, she tells us what they had to endure to make their voices heard for peace. But first, Seeking Peace's executive producer, Kate Osborne, spoke to a young peace activist from her home in southern Yemen, where the war there is entering its fourth year, a complicated conflict that is at once a civil war, Houthi-led religious political rebellion, and proxy war that has U.S.-backed Saudi forces fighting Iranian influence. The war in Yemen has become the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. An estimated 13 million people are at risk of starvation. In the face of what feels like a never-ending conflict, a group of Yemeni women have come together to push for peace. The Peace Track Initiative seeks to put the needs of women at the forefront of ending the conflict in Yemen. Nisma Mansour is their on-the-ground field coordinator. Okay. I am uh, Nisma Mansour, the field coordinator for Peace Track Initiative. I am a Yemeni woman. I live in Aden. I was born and raised here for all of my life. Growing up in Aden was great like the I, I still remember the day like when I was little and things were fine and we did not have that concrete wall in front of my house and there was uh, and there was no constraints on women like everyone like could wear kind of what they want and my mother used to tell me that they they could do whatever they want they could wear whatever they want and even law was in the side of women but slowly slowly growing up and people were adapting this bit of extreme mentality when I hit puberty and I had to wear my hijab I, I felt like I was very conscious of how everyone is telling me to put my hair inside of my hijab and that I should close my abaya, or I should wear this, I should not do this. So by the time I, like, my, my teenage were not that fun because everyone already adapted extreme ideologies and everyone was already thinking that uh, women should be at home and all of these mentality. Inspired by the unrest that has shaken Tunisia and Egypt, tens of thousands have taken to the streets of Yemen. I still remember 2011, like it was yesterday, not seven years ago. The apparently well-organized demonstrations have cropped up across the capital, Sana'a. I was 16 at the time. Um, I, was, I was very young. I did not even understand what revolution meant. President Ali Abdullah Saleh has governed the impoverished Arabian Peninsula state for more than 30 years. Now they want him to go. 
However, um, however, I was very, very amazed to see how women are protesting and leading protests. Yemeni women have protested in the capital, Sana'a, to call on President Ali Abdullah Saleh to step down. I'd be like, wow, like finally women are doing something, not just staying at home. This female protester and a member of the opposition National Council said Yemenis were fed up with their president. Now we, the people, must stage a peaceful revolution until he leaves. I was amazed at how just hundreds of thousands of them decided to go out and tell the former president, like, just leave. Like, I, I kind of sometimes felt like he's, he's untouchable and he will just rule us until, like, infinity. The president of Yemen has followed through on his promise to give up power after 33 years. Ali Abdullah Saleh has signed an agreement aimed at ending the nine-month-old uprising in his country. Saleh is agreeing to transfer power to his vice president. Hijacked, abandoned, forgotten. That is how these young revolutionaries now describe Yemen's popular uprising. Protests started by students have been overshadowed by tribal conflict, warring generals and political parties. A power play. At the time, there were, there were signs of war. Well, happening right now in Yemen, the army says the rebel forces have taken control of the presidential palace in the capital city. Since the coup of uh, the Houthi militia on the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, everyone expected that war will come anytime soon. There are battles between armed militias from a group known as the Houthis. They're mainly Shiite, and they've been fighting to seize control of the capital and push the president from power. At the it was the 16th of March, 2015. A whole, a whole conflict happened near my house. My brother went out and told us that tanks are at the end of our neighborhood. Gunfire in the Yemeni city of Aden causes panic on the streets after Houthi rebel forces and their allies seized the nearby airport. Houthis entered Aden and it was horrible that it became a street war. They appear to be tightening their grip on the outskirts of Yemen's second city. The Houthis were just sending missiles with no target. They just wanted to horrify people. I still remember the sound of the missile, like the zeal that... You would like wake up from from your sleep and go run like and, and look for somewhere safe. And then a few days later, um, clashes advanced and missiles were falling in front of my aunt's house. So Houthis advanced into Sunni Muslim areas has raised fears that regional rivals Iran and Saudi Arabia could be drawn into the Yemeni conflict. The UN has already warned that Yemen is on the brink of civil war. We heard news before, uh, like the, the day before, that a whole family died while trying to escape. A Houthi missile hit them, so we were very scared. Like we would, like because literally the missiles were falling in the building in front of my aunt's building. So my aunt decided that uh, no, we need to go to my grandmother's house. My grandmother's house was uh, was inside a district that was not invaded. So um, a major Saudi-backed offensive was launched earlier this week and has advanced successfully. 
Yemen's Vice President Khalid Bakha says the province has been liberated from Houthi rebel forces. So um, we were lucky, but... The UN says thousands have been killed in this conflict. A million have been displaced and 80% of Yemen's 25 million population face a humanitarian crisis of immense proportions. It's, it changes you sometimes for the best, sometimes for the worst, but it, it really changes you because sometimes I'd be like, oh my God, I just want to go back to my biggest worry in life to find the nice color of nail polish that I, I saw on TV. That, that was me as a teenager. I'd be like, now you're, you're not the same person anymore. I, like at this this moment, I think like really shaped who I am and gave me confidence that I just can't stay like doing nothing. So uh, I remember that one of my friends she told me that uh, Twitter is a tool of change. So I decided to use my Twitter account, tweet about what is happening, tweet in English. So I was just tweeting and tweeting and tweeting telling the world what is happening. The negotiations underway, Yemeni women have been demanding a seat at the table. So the group of women I am with, uh, with the peace track. Now, one of the women at the helm of this campaign is Rasha Jarhum. She's a women's rights activist from Yemen. She's also the director of the Peace Track Initiative, and uh, she joins us from Ottawa in Canada. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Me and Rasha, we basically, my, me and Rasha Jarhum, we basically found each other via Twitter. And then a year after she and uh, our uh, co-founder Yasmin Al-Nadri decided to found uh, Peace Track Initiative. Peace Track Initiative, and uh, she joins us from Ottawa in Canada. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Kasha, you said one woman at the table in the negotiations in Yemen. What role did your organization play in the latest round? Um, we, um, we have been advising the UN Envoys uh, team on uh, how to make this uh, ceasefire agreements more responsive to women's rights. So we're, we're doing our best to connect the voices of women from grassroots initiative, those women who are working on the ground and connect them with the policymakers so they could tell them what is really going on? What are the women's needs and how this war is affecting women in such a bad way? Now, Russia, there have been uh, reports suggesting that women are the ones who are paying the price of Yemen's war. What's your assessment here? Um, it is, um, it, this is very valid. Uh, I mean, Yemen, even before the war, was a hostile country towards women's rights. Uh, so with the war, everything has magnified. Women who want uh, to travel for medical evacuation are not able because they seek uh, the permission of their guardians. Women are more prone to famine because they eat last. This is normally what happens in Yemen. Women are more prone to diseases such as cholera because they are caregiving, uh, care in my opinion and what I see on the ground, women are the first respondent to what, what is happening because they really just want to protect their families. But it is important for us uh, not to see women as passive victims, but to see their strength and resilience um, trying to address all of these issues. Rasha Jarhum, the co-founder of the Peace Track Initiative, 
saying women are often the last to eat. Thank you so much for your time. After three years, the conflict in Yemen is showing no signs of slowing down. An estimated 10,000 people have already lost their lives. The vast majority were civilians. Look, the explosion was so strong that this woman and her child were blown all the way here. I'm begging the international community, you need to send some help. Saturday's attack has only added to the horror and confusion in Yemen a country ravaged by infighting, and that's become a battleground for a bigger proxy war between Sunni and Shiite countries. We did not gain anything from this war. It just, the, the militias, the Houthi militias is the one who gained, and I think maybe the government and the officials are the one who gained money and and statuses, but for ordinary people like me and everyone else, we just gained nothing. For me, I, I gained even more sorrow when I am meeting women who suffer from violence and women who've lost their providers and I hear their stories and I feel more and more obligated that you know we need to help them and do something we need to advocate for them and we we need to keep going and pushing for women's agenda because deep inside i know that it's not a luxury and all of the yemeni officials need to know that it's not a luxury it's a need This is not a business deal when the, where this party will say like you take this I will take this and okay we're settled let's have a peace no it's not because it's not about making victory it's about millions of people who are suffering This year marks the 20th anniversary of the end of the troubles between Catholic nationalists and Protestant unionists in Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement, which was signed in 1998, was the result of decades of peace activism and two years of talks. Talks that included only two female representatives, one a Protestant, Pearl Sager, and the other a Catholic, Monica McWilliams both representing the Women's Coalition of Northern Ireland. I recently spoke with Monica McWilliams about how she and the Women's Coalition fought for their seats at the negotiating table. She began by describing her earliest memories of what was known locally as the Troubles. So my first memory is walking with my father and my brothers and my sisters um, on those marches and being told that they were illegal that our demands for the right to vote, the right to have a job, and the right to social housing were illegitimate demands, and that the marches were illegal. And so there was a great deal of reaction, which was stupid on the part of the state, who employed the army. And CS gas and rubber bullets were fired at us, even though we were walking on a beach 
I never dreamed that that would then lead into a 30-year violent war. It could have been resolved peacefully. How did your decision or desire to be a part of ending that conflict begin to take shape? It's a good question because it was asked of myself and the other women who formed the Women's Coalition, where did you come from? As if we'd fallen out of the sky. (laughs) And we had to remind those who were posing this question that we'd been around for 30 years. We'd stood at too many graves. And I myself had a boyfriend murdered in 1974. And I remember the shock and the pain and the trauma. And by this stage, there were thousands dead. And we said, this has to stop. We, we, we knew nothing else. The killing climaxed a day of violence, including a bomb at Belfast's luxury Europa Hotel. While the wreckage of the Europa was being cleared, two bombs were found outside the city hall. Rifle shots failed to detonate them and one finally exploded. Violence became the norm. It was peace that was strange. And so the extraordinary moment happened of finally ceasefires in 1994 and that was opening up a window and we as ordinary women fell into extraordinary times when the peace talks were declared after the ceasefires we asked the question where are the women Um, because we knew that as activists we had existed and had we not been around the war would have been much worse it was neighbour on neighbour it was community against community but it was the women who were the peace builders from the ground up. We are committed to an elective process leading to all party negotiations without further preconditions. By 1996, the all-party talks were finally set. Those negotiations will start on the 10th of June. There is no place for violence. And there were going to be elections to determine the political parties that would be participating. At that point, how did the women come together to win a seat at the peace table? It was a very spontaneous decision. We actually had not initially decided to stand for election, but we decided that we would put it up to the other parties to see if they would put women in their delegations. And they didn't take that issue seriously. And so two of us, Avla Murray and myself, sat down one night and we said, Is it possible that this could happen? The next day, we started sending out messages, putting press statements and advertisements into the newspapers, asking women, would they come to a meeting to discuss the possibility of us coming together as a coalition? And it was the most unbelievable meeting. Hundreds of women turned up. And there were different voices. Some said, you'll have blood on your hands. If you go for election, that's not what women are known for. The opposite voices in the room said, it's time to wave goodbye to dinosaurs. Let's do it. And those voices won out. And that night we agreed that we would form a coalition. Women started nominating themselves. And by the end of the evening, we had 70 candidates running in the election. I think you uh, then had your slogan that was repeated, wave goodbye to the dinosaurs. It wasn't the most, the slogan wave goodbye to dinosaurs was very creative, but it wasn't the most popular. (laughs) When we put up the posters with this on it, the reaction from the leaders of the other parties was 
uh, vitriolic. They said, how dare you call us a dinosaur? And <laughs> the women said, is your name on that poster? And they said, no, it's not. Well, why are you self-identifying as a dinosaur? And then we would walk away laughing. <laughs> now, I know there were a, a minimum number of votes that were required for any of the parties to make it to the table. When did you realize that you had reached a point uh, where you would make it to the talks? Well, it was a very different process. The threshold was not huge, and it was 10,000 votes, and we sat down at the table and worked it out that we probably could reach that threshold, knowing that we had the networks in place. So we need to focus on local media and on our local neighbourhoods. And that's what the women did. They formed themselves into teams in every single county and community. And we sent them out around the doors. Thanks very much. Do you know who I am? Monica Williams. That's how you get votes. Um, and on the day of the count, we stood nervously because we did not think in a million years that we were going to be one of the ten parties. And that night we were declared as one of the parties going to the talks. Also at the talks will be the Women's Coalition, putting forward a new non-sectarian voice for constructive and inclusive dialogue. We were in total shock. Oh, we're absolutely delighted. I mean, six weeks ago we had no fax machines, no telephones, no offices. So we've come from nowhere and we're delighted today to have been getting a mandate to send us into those talks. What was it like in those negotiations? How were the women treated? Well, first... In the negotiations, there's a lot of venting. And a good part of the two years was about people shouting at each other and not really listening. Um, but maybe you have to do that. We felt like outsiders in the first year. We were received a great deal of insults. Uh, go home to the kitchen. Um, go and breed for the country. Have babies, which is what you're supposed to do. And on and on it went, and the public were shocked that these men could behave so badly towards two women who had been elected to these seats. You were also playing a, a mediating or, or a refereeing role between some of the um, uh, male representatives in the process and those who were excluded. What we did was really important in negotiations. You need to know what the others around the table are thinking. When they found out that we were talking to Sinn Féin, who had been locked out during the first year because they hadn't reinstated their ceasefire, and we were back-channeling, which is what good negotiators and facilitators and mediators ought to be doing, and it's now accepted that it is something that you should do in a peace process. It was absolutely shocking. You women are in love with murderers. You're just Sinn Féin in skirts. And again, these labels came firing across the table. But we kept up that uh, back-channeling and convinced that party that they should reinstate a ceasefire and get into the room because their ghost was rattling around in the room and we were spending time talking about them and they weren't even in the room. We said, look, we're strangers here. We didn't grow up alongside each other. We might have grown up amongst each other, but we don't know each other. And at this table, we need to learn to know each other if we're going to find out what our interests are. So we started inviting the Loyalist parties to our homes on Friday night for dinner, and we got to know them very well. These human elements that go on in a process like this, 
are so important to the ultimate outcome, as you've just vividly described. One of the things that was supporting the process for peace in Northern Ireland was the engagement and leadership of the United Kingdom, Ireland, and the United States. President Clinton would invite the Northern Irish political parties to come to the White House on St. Patrick's Day. The male representatives of the various parties held uh, separate meetings with the president in the Oval Office. What happened with the Women's Coalition? Well, they forgot about us, and someone realized that they had messed up. Um, I think they approached you, Milan, in your role um, as uh, First Lady's Chief of Staff at that stage and asked permission if we could speak to the First Lady somehow the First Lady understood exactly what I was talking about. And she asked, what can I do for you? And I said, well, are you going to speak tonight? And she said, well, yes, I'll be introducing the President. And I said, it would be good if the men in the room who come from Northern Ireland can hear your voice. Thank you so much. And I want to formally, on behalf of uh, the President and myself, welcome all of you here this evening. She stood up that night and there was a hush in the room and she spoke about the role of women in conflicts and the role of women in Northern Ireland and in Ireland and the need to have women involved in these processes. A special word of appreciation to all the women in Ireland and Northern Ireland who have worked for peace and worked to bring about reconciliation over so many years. Men's eyes just opened up and some of their mouths fell open because they hadn't expected this. And I could feel their eyes on me and Pearl as if we had somehow bribed the First Lady and they came up afterwards and said, how did that happen? And I said, well, while you men were with the... President of the United States, we were with the First Lady and um, we just had a chat, as women always do all over the world. And this is the outcome. And boy, did they look disappointed. And that meeting with yourself and the First Lady changed everything. It gave me a great deal of confidence. And when we came back, the attitude most definitely towards us did change. So in April of 1998, finally, the Good Friday Agreement is signed. The people in Northern Ireland have always asked and said, if only the politicians would sit down together and talk and reach an agreement. Today, we have done it. So you went from being Monica the peace negotiator to Monica the politician running for a seat uh, on the Women's Coalition Party label in the uh, Northern Irish Assembly. What did you want to achieve in now taking up the prospect of elective office? Well, it was a baptism of fire because that was the referendum, and I think only a matter of weeks later followed the Assembly election. The first Assembly was difficult because it was the first attempt to implement the what we had agreed. So we spent more time talking about the differences in terms of that agreement than we did on bread and butter issues. Sometimes it was a slow process, but we also were the first party, the Women's Coalition, to put forward a private member's bill, which was to recognise the need for children's rights to be protected. And eventually that also became law. 
And we ourselves, to be honest, Milan, had said that we had never wanted to be a long-term established party. That was not our intention. And in fact, after the two years of the peace agreement, we were all hoping to be able to go back to our own lives, to do our day jobs, to do what we found very productive in our lives. But to be part of the implementation, you had to be part of that first assembly. So I ran. How did all of this change, Monica McWilliams? Well, it's you do not come through these processes and remain the same person. Um, I hope I'm a lot wiser from having met so many different people who think differently, but also have shown me that there are different ways of looking at a problem. And I hope I have more patience than I once did, because you need a great deal of it if you're going to be in these processes. But I also have to say that I'm a better person for having been part of it. We need more role models. If a young woman doesn't see a woman in that role, she cannot begin to expect that she can do that job, and she can. But once she sees a woman doing it, she realizes, I could do that too. Monica, I'm so glad you mentioned those two words, role model, because that's indeed what you have been and continue to be. I can't imagine a more appropriate way to mark the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Accords. So thank you, Monica McWilliams, for all that you've done and continue to do. Thank you, Milan, for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Monica McWilliams continues to work for reconciliation in Northern Ireland and to advocate for women's participation in peace talks worldwide. In this interview, you heard clips from Fork Films' documentary, Wave Goodbye to Dinosaurs, which tells the story in detail of the Women's Coalition. You can see the documentary as part of the PBS series, Women, War, and Peace, Part 2, airing on March 25th and 26th at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central. The series gives a fresh take on international events shaped by women. For more information, visit pbs.org slash women, war, and peace, where episodes will stream after broadcast. This is the final episode in our first season. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you have heard, please share it far and wide. And for more on all of our esteemed guests, check out giwps.georgetown.edu backslash Seeking Peace. And don't forget to join us for our second season. Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Hard Listening Media. This episode was made in conjunction with UN Women. Our associate producer is Ali Post. The show is edited by Ibi Caputo and sound designed by Sarah Curtis with help from Steve Bone. Our production manager is Sarah Rutherford and our executive producer is Kate Osborne. Original music composed by Allison Leighton Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation.